I'm Peter Wall. And I'm Jennifer Carnegie. Welcome to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. On each episode, we'll be speaking to inspiring leaders about the ups and downs of their careers. As well as doing what we do best, using our years of leadership experience in both the military and commercial business to get leaders to the top of their game. You can listen to each new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So subscribe now to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations. Okay, let's get going. So hello, everybody. Uh, welcome again to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. And it's our great pleasure today to welcome John Deverell, a former military colleague of mine, an Amicus associate, and somebody who's got bags of experience in a whole raft of leadership and coaching and mentoring roles. John, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing over the years. Well, Peter, thanks for that. Um I need to preface it by saying that nothing I've done has ever been on purpose. It's been purely opportunistic. I joined the army in order to fill in time while I had a better idea. Uh, hated it to begin with, realized after a year or so, the army actually gives you, contrary to expectations, immense freedom to do almost what you want within reason. So I had 30 years of extremely exciting service uh, in that. I learned through that to appreciate more than anything else uh, the people who I worked with. The army, after all, is is very much a people organization. I then was made an offer I couldn't refuse by Invensys PLC. And so I left slightly early and I went to join their executive leadership team. And over the course of two years working globally, I had to deal, amongst other things, on behalf of the CEO with a large number of, of crises and potential crises of all sorts to do with intellectual property theft, to do with counterfeiting, to do with a factory falling over, to do with uh, one of our factories in China being occupied. And I was the man who had to drive for solutions, even if it was uh, in an area about which I knew nothing and advised the CEO accordingly. I then left after two years and spent two years working for a financial PR company in the city. And there my task was to add to my existing practical expertise the ability to help clients deal with reputational issues, which, as we know, in this highly presentationally geared age, whether we're talking about governments or companies, is extremely relevant. It's also all about the presentation. And then I left some seven years ago after two years with them, set up on my own. My work has increasingly moved from just dealing with crisis to dealing with preparations for, which is all about the foresight, what I call it, the prepared mind, using what Louis Pasteur famously said, fortune favorites of prepared mind and then over time transferring that into the whole sphere of leadership so this is to my mind what leaders should be doing not only dealing with difficult situations but preparing with their teams to deal with them so they're on the front foot been doing some interesting work uh, working with the government of sudan who as some people might know was recently taken off the sponsors of state terrorism list which has opened up the market for people who want to come in and work with them and then finally, Peter, um, being scooped up by you uh, to work with you for a number of very interesting clients. So thank you for the opportunity. We're going to talk a lot about uh, how the things you've done in your career have influenced your view of leadership and perhaps same for Jennifer and myself. Um, but jumping straight into the Sudan situation and the sorts of things you've done in places like Nigeria and Somalia, 
Uh, is there a role for leadership in that or is that just a form of diplomacy? I think that the two go together. Um, I would draw further parallels between leadership, as you and I know well, Peter, from our, our past working for the British government. Uh, it's uh, very much parallels between uh, those two spheres and working for governments, working with governments overseas, very much so in terms of leadership. And you've tended um, both in your military work and the things I worked with you on when we were sort of in the MOD and then more recently, you've kind of, you're attracted by crisis and risk management and resilience in crisis. Is that is that a specific style of leadership or is it just a continuation of leadership in the round? The longer I've worked uh, with governments and with commercial entities, uh, the more that my work uh, on crisis and on crisis preparation has tended towards leadership. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's where the buck stops. And we all know as leaders in our own right in the past and currently, uh, it's easier to manage and to lead things and people when it's all going well. But where people really earn their money as governments, as we can see now from our own government trying to deal with COVID, uh, or indeed uh, with commercial leaders, is when things are bad. So when they tend towards crisis. Uh, and and um, from a government's point of view, uh, dealing with a place like Sudan, from their own government's point of view, it's pretty tricky. And I think that people like uh, the three of us who've had experience in, in, in dealing with these matters, we absolutely have something to contribute. So everybody dreads the prospect of a crisis looming on their watch when they're a leader. Well, they, what should they be doing to prepare for that? Should, they should be thinking through the scenarios. Uh, I think our own government is a good case in point. So uh, I remember recently uh, Gus O'Donnell, uh, Lord O'Donnell, uh, coming on the radio and talking about when he was uh, Cabinet Secretary, Head of the Civil Service in, in Britain, in London. Uh, the number one item they had on their risk register was a pandemic in terms of very low likelihood events, but, like, but events nonetheless which would have a very high impact. And on his own admission, which I thought was very honest of him, um, no work was done to take that forward. And my point would be the start point should be looking uh, through things like risk registers and one's talking about both governments and commercial companies, looking at what risks might pertain uh, and then doing some thinking. And my point is that it doesn't necessarily take any investment in money. It does take investment in time and thought as a top team led by the CEO or led by a prime minister or whoever in terms of thinking, well, what would we do? What do we need to do if this happens? And that's invaluable because it means one's less likely as a government or as a company to be caught in the headlights. So, John, why do you think people are shy of doing that, of thinking through those different scenarios in business particularly? I think uh, from a commercial point of view, because the numbers are, are the most important thing, they need to make the numbers. And, and very often any deviation from that is uh, an unwelcome distraction. I think very often because uh, that's not why they came into the business or to govern in the first place. They came in because they had specific qualifications uh, which were relevant for whatever job they started off in. Uh, they did not come in and, uh, to, lead, to lead as such and to deal with crises. I think the experience of, of people like uh, Peter and me is different because, uh, firstly, we, we went in, in our case, into the British Army in order to lead. Secondly, we were lucky enough to be trained to do so, uh, and, and rightly so, because that is what we did. Uh, and uh, we had to get it right, because otherwise, putting it bluntly, why should we invite people to go over the top and go over the top with them to 
uh, worst case to die unless we're going to do the job properly. And the third thing is, I think, because organisations like the army are there specifically to deal with crisis. And of course, a commercial entity is not there for that reason. And so, therefore, we, ha we have a head start in terms of experience and training. Uh, and I've always maintained that there's a very easy read across. So the sorts of things one needs to do to prepare for things going wrong in the military applies equally to a commercial company, applies to a government. So I think there's a strong link there. So if you're the CEO of an organisation and you've highlighted the top 10 risks that you think might might affect your organisation in the next two or three years, in it, invariably it's the number 11 risk that actually affects you. Um, it's something that you've not anticipated, something that you couldn't anticipate, something that you've not thought of. What do you do then? Because all of the, is all that planning then wasted? No, by no means, because I think, Jennifer, that, that um, with the best will in the world and with the most assiduous planning for things going wrong, what we anticipate will never be, never be quite the thing that actually happens. So it's going to be maybe five or ten degrees away from that. But, but I've always maintained that, that just going through the exercise of thinking through a possible issue or possible issues means that when the time comes, uh, the team itself, uh, led by the person at the top, will just be that much more agile. Okay, fantastic. I know something that's, that you're passionate about in organisations is delegated authority and freedom of action for, um, for employees. Why do you feel passionate about that? Because uh, it's an issue, to my mind, of, of trust in both directions. It's an issue of, of, of trust looking upwards. Uh, and in, in the case you mentioned, uh, trust looking downwards. So um, I will delegate to you if you're working for me, uh, if I believe that you are going to be capable of doing the job which I'm delegating to you. Uh, and, and I will do that on the basis of having selected you as an appropriate person to do it. Uh, based on your experience so far and your training, some of which uh, I will probably have contributed to. Uh, you will want to do that job. You'll want me to delegate those things to you because you want the experience. I, in my turn, will be generous in accepting that you might make mistakes and in treating those mistakes as learning opportunities. What is the point? I always say to senior bankers, uh, for example, what is the point in um, employing intelligent people and paying them a lot of money unless they, the senior bankers, have the trust to give them the jobs to do, even though mistakes might be made? If we don't delegate, two points. Firstly, why should we bother to employ those uh, people? And, and secondly, we will suffer massively from overwork. And thirdly, when we're out of the game because we may not be available, then no one can pick up the ball. So for all those reasons, delegation has to happen. And it's an issue of trust. John, in all of your experience, where are the places where this delegation of authority has the highest premium? Well, um, I'll start off with the army. And I think a very good example of, of, of that within the army is, is in the whole world of special forces. So whether you're talking about the, the very well-known uh, SAS or, or other uh, special forces bodies, that completely applies. And the reason why delegation is so absolutely important in organizations like that is because, and this parallels indeed, of course, some commercial uh, companies, uh, because they have people working uh, hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles away from uh, from the people who, who run the organization, uh, dealing, in, uh, dealing with situations which could change extremely rapidly. 
uh, being in places where physical communications are uh, sometimes uh, either very poor or non-existent. And therefore, they have to make up their minds very quickly about how to deal with uh, sometimes not only new, but very threatening situations. And therefore, people are both selected and trained to be able to, to do that. Uh, and unless you have people who are not only uh, prepared to use their judgment, but allowed to use their judgment, and where sometimes mistakes are tolerated, it's simply not going to work. And, and um, as I say, that applies to commercial organizations as well. Uh, the organization, such organizations will fail uh, if they try and run things with tight control. It just doesn't work. So I've heard lots of business people say, ah, you see, it's it, particularly in financial services or highly regulated organisations, that because of the regulation, that trust, the, the trust is difficult and a kind of command and control structure is much more appropriate. So how would you react to that? Well, of course, um, uh, the, uh, the laws of the land have tried to uh, deal with that. So in 2017, regarding banks, the senior managers and certification regime was brought in, uh, not just by the regulator, but actually by law, uh, SMCR or SMR for short. Uh, and then in due course, a year or two later, that was brought in for the whole sector. So you're, you're talking about 47,000 firms. Uh, and, and the reason that was done was, was precisely because of what you say, because people uh, at the top of the organization were not prepared to, uh, to be accountable for what happened lower down. So for example, if LIBOR was rigged, uh, the people concerned went to prison, but the people at the top who delegated authority in the first place uh, didn't. And that's changed now. And therefore, uh, what has been put in place is the, is the mechanisms to ensure that, uh, ensure that there is a proper understanding of responsibility and accountability. Uh, and therefore, as part and parcel of SMCR, uh, every bank was obliged to draw up a responsibilities map, which linked people with the top with people lower down. I think one thing which is regrettable is a number of those people at the top actually refused to take up certain jobs because they knew that they could legally be in the firing line. I understand that on one level because, of course, people who go into banks don't necessarily go into banks to lead or to manage. They go into banks because they want to make money or because they're interested in banking. But the reality is, of course, as people move up, they simply have to be accountable and they have to delegate. Otherwise, the machine can't work. And the SMCR was an effort to try to make that, uh, to try to... Uh, try to set up a system for that happening. So in in your experience in commerce, what difference do you see in organisation capability between organisations that, that delegate down that authority and organisations that suck up all the control back up towards the top? Well, I'll give an example. So the last uh, for the last three months, I've been, uh, obviously I shan't mention their name, but I've been mentoring uh, the directors of, of, of an extremely successful company. Um, and the issue there was they had a rapid turnover of junior employees. Uh, and on delving into this and on engaging with the company, uh, one of the reasons for that was because the junior employees were not given the latitude to deal direct with clients because, because they weren't trusted by the people at the top. It wasn't that the people lower down uh, weren't capable of doing it. It's just the people at the top were absolute perfectionists, had and have an extremely good relationship with the clients. But because they didn't want anything not to be perfect, they basically did everything themselves, very tight control. And that led to two things. Firstly, a huge amount of overwork uh, at the top level. And secondly, hugely dissatisfied junior employees who wanted 
to cut their teeth, wanted to meet the clients, but weren't allowed to. So how do you get people to loosen up? How do you get people not to sweat the small stuff? Again, it goes back to selecting and training people properly, being completely clear about the parameters in which they can operate, but giving them freedom then to do that. Not cutting them free altogether, still taking a close interest, still taking, still taking an interest in what they're doing, but not in such a way that they don't feel they can breathe. Uh, and I absolutely accept that that's not for everybody. And uh, I accept that people, there are people higher up who just simply can't let go. Uh, it will simply be painful to work for them. And conversely, there are people lower down who don't want to be given initiative, who actually want to be controlled tightly. But provided people recognize that at the outset, then there's less chance for dissatisfaction and upset and less chance of, of this uh, churn I talked about earlier. But let's imagine that uh, people accept what you've said. Subordinates don't really want to take the risk or have the responsibility and the bosses don't want to let go. There is a consequence of that, isn't there? I mean, the organization is not going to achieve its full potential if that's the deal they strike with one another. Is that fair? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And so Sir John Harvey Jones, I think, is a, is a fantastic mentor um, and advocate in this regard. And, and John Harvey Jones, uh, who, of course, chairman of IPI, you know, well-known television personality, cut his teeth as, 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 a, as a naval officer in the Second World War. Uh, and the two books he wrote, which I remember very well, Getting It Together is the title of one and Making It Happen is the title of the other one. And towards the end of one of his books, he says, uh, and I quote, um, I've given up on practically all I believe in, which is quite a thing to say, uh, catches you as a reader up short, apart from putting trust in people. And he said, my experience is that incentivizing people is at the end of the day, almost nothing to do with money almost all to do with putting trust in them. And if you do that, they'll do almost anything for you. And I'm sure that's, back to your point, I'm sure that that's the point. If, if we do that, then of course the results will be fantastic. People will want to move mountains for you because trust, having trust in people is the most massively incentivizing thing psychologically. And the converse is true. If, if, if I feel not trusted, why should I bother to do things for the guy upstairs apart from the, for the transaction of the fact I'm being paid? No more than that. Now, I fully accept that and actually a place where um, Jennifer and I have been working recently, um, there are very good examples of people who've been uh, in a controlling mode, um, turning on and, and interfering and agitating and not letting go, uh, leading to some of their direct reports basically shutting down, yeah. just saying, well, what's the point? I'll turn up at nine o'clock. I'll yeah. leave at five. Yeah. I'll take the coupon. But what happens in between that? No yeah. one really is letting me take hold of the reins that I'm employed to to, to hold and uh, utterly demotivated. The funny, funny thing is, when that situation is then changed by uh, removing some of the people um, who are more inclined to control and interfere, the speed of reversal is uh, a wonder to behold. Absolutely. But I'd like to take it up, if, if I may, Peter, I'd like to take it up one level. So we started off the conversation by talking about um, dealing with uh, countries um, who themselves might be going through very difficult periods or coming out of very difficult periods. Um, and I think my experience of, of working uh, for governments um, in places such as Somalia, uh, in places such as Nigeria, uh, northeast Nigeria is the case in point, um, Mozambique is currently in, in, in the situation I'm about to describe. 
is um, there's, a, there's a similar issue there at macro scale, and, and that is where uh, the people, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, and I know this to be true in at least some cases, um, where the people don't trust that the government, either nationally or locally, has their back. Uh, that there's no indication that the government is actually working hard to support the people and look after them. And in those cases, uh, of course, it's much easier for the bad guys, in the case of, say, Al-Shabaab with Somalia, uh, or the bad guys working across the border uh, into Mozambique, or Boko Haram in, in northeast Nigeria, it is much, much easier for them to get a foothold. And worst case, to, to say to the people, sometimes justifiably, we're here to protect you against uh, the official armed forces of the country who uh, have no interest other than taking money off you and uh, abusing you and disregarding your rights. So um, this applies, therefore, to entities of the smallest size and of the biggest size, like a country. The bottom line is, why should I bother to do anything for the country if the country doesn't do anything for me? Uh, and so, again, it's two-way trust. Um, and there are so many examples of that. John, you've had a really a long and really varied career in the military and, um, and now in the, the commercial space while still doing some work for governments around the world. What and who have influenced you throughout your career and developed your leadership style into what it is today? Well, I think it goes back to, Jennifer, what we were talking about just now, which in a sense is all to do with the psychology. So, uh, and I think um, linked with that is... is, is um, a sense of whether or not people are listening. And I don't regard myself as a particularly good listener, but I understand at least that I, ha that I have to do it. And I think, therefore, linked in with the whole business of trust um, is the issue of listening. So to put it back in a commercial context, having seen myself over the years, as we probably all have, um, examples of where um, uh, uh, the leadership of a, of, of, a, of a company is better able to deal with uh, with crisis. It's to do very often with getting on the front foot. Um, and I'm talking now both presentationally and practically. So both the whole aspect, which I've dealt with a lot of, of, of making sure the reputation remains impact, intact, as well as dealing with the drama practically. And that's related, in my experience, to, to leadership and management at every level showing uh, two things. One, that they're uh, prepared to uh, listen to their subordinates who come to them with issues and concerns, whatever they might be, they could be quite personal. Uh, and secondly, showing that they're prepared to do something about it. Unless the people working for them have the trust that those two things are going to happen, they won't come in good time with their issues in the first place. And that means by the time whatever the issue is, has, has gathered momentum, um, then automatically the leadership is on, is on the back foot. And I've seen that so many times. And so however good the leadership might appear to be, say, to the board, unless at every level they instill that ethos of, of listening and taking seriously what people want to point out as subordinates, all bets are off. It's just through experience of seeing that, really. John, I think it would be good to hear your views on uh, toxic leadership, because it's something you know I've discussed before, and we know there's more of it about out there in all sorts of organisations than we would really like. Yeah, Peter, important question, nicely asked. I think toxic leadership is very interesting. I, I did, um, again, Peter, 
again, no names. Uh, I remember doing um, some work with their compliance department. And one thing which cropped up repeatedly, which was quite a surprise, really, when we came to the more open discussion, is, is uh, John, what do we do about toxic leaders? And, um, and what they tend to mean is people who they've experienced, who they've worked for, who from above look really shiny and really get good results. But from below, are absolute bastards to work for, being blunt about it. And it is a real issue because they get results, but they get results in a way which, which uh, discards people. Uh, and again, people who are very unhappy and, and may well go, go off sick because they got stress. Again, not known about by people higher up. And I think that's a real issue. And and uh, it takes courage to deal with people like that. And we've all come across them. So maybe that's something worth exploring. Well, one of the things that always surprises me, uh, no matter how many times it happens, um, and, you know, we've seen quite a lot of this recently in some places we've been working, unfortunately, is just how surprised people are when they discover this um, dichotomy between what they think of the person who reports to them and what the people reporting to the person think and how interesting it is that that's not much more transparent to bosses, that they've got people in their midst who appear to be um, working hard, uh, you know, taking the organisation in the right direction, but in fact, um, wittingly or not, they're actually doing quite a lot of damage, not only in terms of creating a very awkward culture, but also in terms of depriving people of the opportunity to learn and grow their skills and develop. Uh, so what, why does that happen? Well, I guess God's got a big zoo. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is, as leaders, we have to help keep the zoo, and it's very difficult sometimes. Come on, the listeners want you to unpack that a little bit. Okay. I mean, the first thing is, as, as we've all seen, and perhaps we've had experience ourselves, um, people don't want to raise issues and concerns because they feel they'll be out of a job. So I go back to my earlier point that issues won't get raised with these people, and therefore, when things do go wrong, the organisation will find itself on, on, on the back foot. Secondly, of course, those bosses are not unlocking potential. Uh, there's no possibility of allowing these subordinates to fly free because um, uh, they're probably control freaks, these, these people uh, who are toxic leaders. They're typically or very often sociopaths, which means that they are uh, highly intelligent. Uh, they know exactly uh, how to press buttons. Um, and, of course, they can appear to be very charming people, especially when dealing with people who matter above them. Um Something we haven't talked about, which is very relevant, which is which is having a confidential channel. Um, some people call it a speak up channel or whatever, but but an alternative route by which people can raise concerns, which means that they don't, if they feel they can't go through or they've tried to go through their own bosses and it's not worked, at least they can raise issues uh, through a separate channel. I spent two years um, working for a PLC, a FTSE 100 company. We had 20,000 people around the world. I was on the executive leadership team. And I remember um, the general counsel, uh, she came to me and she said, John, we're going to 
put in place a completely new compliance program around the world. And we're going to put a poster up on every single wall of every single factory, every single office. And we're going to make quite clear what the values are. And if any of those values are going to be infringed, then uh, we're going to make quite clear um, who those people contact, anybody picking those things up. After one year, she came to me and she said, John, it's, I'm rather worried. We, we've, we've rolled out all this stuff. And um, despite the size of the, of, of the company, we've only had a total of nine examples where people have actually spoken up through this channel. And I said, Victoria, um, it's quite simple why. I said, because, you know, we've looked at this from a very London-centric point of view. We haven't taken into, into account very different cultures where perhaps because of the culture of deference, people are just not going to raise these issues. And so it's not just a question of having an alternative route to raise concerns, for example, about toxic bosses, but actually understanding the culture through which those are going to work or not. And I think I'll give another example where why those things don't work sometimes. By definition, they need to be anonymous. Um, again, a very well-known international bank, uh, the CEO, this is actually very public, it happened about three, four years ago, the CEO uh, very nearly lost his job because he tried to unmask the identity of somebody who uh, had raised an issue. Uh, and uh, the board, in my view, should have sacked this person. They'd had already quite a lot of churn in terms of their CEOs at uh, a group level. Um, and the only reason this person got off uh, was probably because the employee wasn't a full-time employee. A very good example. So a classic case in point, despite the fact that the CEO was advised not to try to unmask the identity of this person, they did their best to do so. I mean, what a disincentive for anybody uh, using these so-called confidential channels. So again, the mechanisms need to be respected. The mechanisms need to be A, put in place and B, respected. Otherwise, once again, all bets are off and people will be deeply unhappy. And what sort of leadership is that? It's not. Thank you, John. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but as always, it's all, it's fantastic to hear from you and, and hear about your experiences, which are different to most of the people that we work with. And, and you do get yourself into some fairly, get involved in some fairly extreme situations. So your your take on things is, is really helpful and, and refreshing for people, I think, to reflect on. So on behalf of Peter and myself, um, thank you so much for joining us today and um, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, John. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can find each new episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. At Amicus, our bread and butter is helping leaders create consistent results by bringing out the best in their people. If you need support with anything we talked about on this episode, you can find out more about us at amicuslimited.com. This podcast has been done in conjunction with Inkblot Creative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.